If you would then please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Romans 3, 19 through 26. And following the reading of Scripture, we will sing the Gloria Patri. And which is printed for you in your in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. As we come to Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we are in the section still on how we come to know our sin and our misery. Uh, Beginning in Lord's Day 5, we'll begin to consider how we may be delivered from our sin and misery. Very important, wonderful things, but it's good to know the bad news first. We need to know that we are in sin and misery so that we are motivated and know how we can be delivered from that. And so we come to uh, Lord's Day 4. It's the third part of knowing our sins and misery. And there's three questions that highlight two particular uh, qualities and characteristics of God, his justice and his mercy, uh, both important. But Herman Herman Huxema outlines these three questions in a way that uh, is very helpful, I think, to us and thinking through what we're being told here. Question nine is the justice of God's demand. We might say also the justice of God's law. Uh, Question 10, the second question is the justice of God's wrath. And then the third question, question 11, is the justice of God's mercy. And he he goes on to say, That in one sense, these three questions really are connected. They really form the basis of really only one question in the mind of fallen man. And the one question in the mind of fallen man is, how can I sin with impunity and not have any consequences? Uh, They want to do what they want to do. They want to sin in whatever way they want to sin. The uh, fallen man, unconverted man, they're not sorry about sin. 
they're sorry about the consequences of sin. They don't want those. How can they escape those and still have their sin? A Christian is a different person. We struggle with sin, but we don't want to stay in our sin. We want, to, we want to get out of it, if at all possible, and by God's grace, and God has means to help us to do that. We, we uh, certainly can wallow in our sins from time to time and get caught up in that, but we don't want to stay there. The unconverted man, he's quite content to be there, but how can he get rid of the consequences for his sin? He's afraid of the results, and so their objective, the only well, the, the way they are attempting to do this, it's really only imaginary and totally futile. But the way that fallen man tries to do this is he tries a bold attempt from his sinful heart to change the living God. If only we can get God to change, then we can have uh, what we want. Uh, he invents a God of his own image like himself, an idol that gives him the freedom to sin without consequences. He tries to take away from the living God his sterner attributes, like holiness, like wrath, and just focus on the more pleasant attributes, like love, like mercy, like goodness. And so these three questions form the objective of the fallen man to change God. And so question number nine is essentially saying, how can we get God to relinquish his commands? We need to get God to give up his law and his command. Question number 10, the second question is, how can we get God to relinquish his justice? That's our problem. God needs to change We need to get rid of his justice. How can we get God to change and relinquish the demands of his justice? That third question, question 11, and how can we get God in relinquishing his justice to have mercy overthrow justice? Uh, Surely God's merciful, so he doesn't, shouldn't want to be just, and he can't be just. In his vain blindness, he thinks he can get God to change. But what a horrible outcome that would be. To have a God that's changeable. To have a God that we couldn't depend on. To have a God whose promises made to generations past are not true today. To have a God whose threats made generations ago don't bear weight on us today. It would put us in a similar situation perhaps as the ancient Greeks who had these capricious gods who would do whatever they wanted to do anytime and would, had no standards and so you couldn't depend on them. Any sacrifices you offered to them were not a guarantee of anything. What a horrible way of life that would be, to have a God who's changeable. But we don't have a God who's changeable. We have the unchanging God. He's infinite, eternal, and unchanging in all his character. And it's that God in whom we trust. So we come to question number nine. 
And it asks the question, does not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? We've learned already the sin and misery of man is that he's fallen into sin. And by nature, we are totally depraved and unable to do that which is pleasing to God, certainly unable to do any spiritual good before Almighty God. And so the attack comes against God uh, that he's unjust to require from that, from uh, acquire that from man. Uh, and the answer of the, confession, the catechism is not at all, for God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. God does not change, and therefore the demands of God's law do not change. And it's not unjust for God to continue that demand. And yet that's the objection thrown against God. If you're still in Romans, you can turn to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment. Paul brings up this, this very specific attack against God in Romans 9, 14. <clears throat> and it's in the context of the doctrine of election, which is, can be a difficult doctrine for us as we think about it. But in, in Romans 9, verse 14, Paul says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. By no means. Or some translations, God forbid. God is not unjust. He can't be unjust. His character is, is righteous and holy. He could no sooner be unjust than he could change his nature, than he could deny his being. And God created man in a wonderful covenant relationship with him in the garden. And God provided for Adam and Eve all the wonderful blessings of that relationship. The, the gifts and the abilities and, and the blessings that they had in knowing the Lord. And he gave them the command, we think particularly of the prohibition. But we, essentially the command of the garden in terms of their positively of their life with him was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God gave them all the resources they needed to obey that command. And they had every inclination of obeying that command. And yet we and they rose up in rebellion against Almighty God. And so God must change. God must change the demands of his law. But God is just. Is it unjust for God to continue the demands of his law even after man rebelled against him? How could that possibly be? God hasn't changed. His character hasn't changed. His law hasn't changed. It's man that's changed. And man's relationship to to him. Here, if you're still in Romans 9, look at verse 19. Again, an attack against God. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? God's the one at fault. 
but God is not unjust. It's interesting reading a number of different resources on the catechism and in preparing for this sermon and the others. And on this particular question, I found in several different of the resources a common illustration. And the illustration that was offered was that of a builder. Now, I don't, I'm not, this is not a condemnation of builders. There's many wonderful, good builders. But this story, the analogy goes like this. An owner of a particular property hires a builder to build and construct a particular structure on his property. And the owner provides for the builder all the resources he needs to do that work. All the financial backing, all the materials, everything that's needed for that builder to do what the con- he's contracted to do is all provided for him. Nothing is left uh, missing in, in all the, that he needs for his job. But say that builder goes out and he squanders that money in gambling or uh, futile entertainments and it's all gone. Is it unjust for the owner to hold the builder to his contract? And the answer is no. He had provided everything that the builder needed to accomplish the work. The owner wasn't at fault. The builder was. God provided everything that we needed to obey that command. And yet at the instigation of the devil and the inclination of their hearts and ours, we rebel against Almighty God. God is not unjust in the demands of his law, even though man complains about it. Question number 10, the second question, the justice of God's wrath, asks the question, will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Is there any way God can change and not hold fast to his justice? Can we change God's justice to wink at sin and allow it to go by without um, making any uh, repunishment of it or retribution of it? And the answer is by no means. He is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment, temporally and eternally. As he has declared, cursed is everyone that does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. God does not change. He cannot and will not relinquish his justice. And the corruption of sinful man, both in his original sin and the actual sins that grow out of that, must be dealt with according to his just and holy character and law. Uh, Rebellion must be punished. Adam and Eve were warned, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that you must not eat. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And God even then delayed the execution of the, the judgment so that it would allow room for grace to come in and grace to be revealed. 
But God in his justice must punish rebellion and sin. Because he is, he is a God of justice. He is a holy God. In the verse we read earlier, um, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Therefore, he cannot dwell with the unrighteous. He cannot have them in his presence. He has to execute out of his holiness and just wrath punishment for sin. God could no sooner wink at sin and ignore it than he could change his nature. God is unchanging. He, it is not possible for him to allow sin to go unpunished. Then the third question, question 11, is not God then also merciful? And here the fallen man is trying to pit two attributes of God against each other, his justice and his mercy. Well, isn't God merciful? Well, surely if he's merciful, he won't carry out his justice. And so a man tries to get pit these attributes against one another and try to get God on the horns of a dilemma. Well, is he going to be just or is he going to be merciful? And the catechism answer is, God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is with everlasting punishment of body and soul. God does not change. And therefore, his mercy cannot annul his justice. And in God, these attributes are not at war with one another. They blend together perfectly in his holy character. His justice is a merciful justice. His mercy is a just mercy. And the significance of our sin as is brought out in this particular answer, what makes our sin so sinful, what makes our sin so heinous, is not in the character of the person who sins, though there are noble people who commit sins that become scandalous to us, but that's not the source of the heinousness of our sin. The, the, the wretchedness of our sin, the intensity of our sin, comes from the fact that we sin against God Most High, the one who is all glorious. It's the honor of his being that we sin against. And so therefore, the eternal God must execute even eternal punishment. God's mercy cannot annul his justice. And this is where the catechism leaves us. But as we go back to the passage of scripture that I read for us before we began, it's pushing us toward what is our hope. How can it be that God is both just and merciful? And I'm anticipating what we're getting to next, 
But Roman Paul gives us the perfect answer to it in Romans chapter three. How can God be at the same time just and merciful? Well, come back to Romans three, and this time I'm reading it in the ESV because I like the word propitiation that it uses here. But in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God cannot abandon his justice or he would cease being God. He must be just. God can't annul his justice. He can't wink in sin. But God can provide a substitute. A a substitute in whom the wrath of God's justice can be satisfied. So that God can be at the same time just... And the justifier or the merciful one for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That justice of God had to be poured out. It has to be satisfied. It can't be denied. It must be carried out. If God is God, it had to be done. But God could provide one to take that wrath in our place, which he did in his son. And made him the propitiation that is the satisfier of God's wrath against our sin. So that you and I might not experience that eternal wrath in ourselves. But we might experience that mercy. And so in Jesus, justice and mercy meet. Justice and mercy are brought together in Christ. And that's what is our, that, that is what is our hope. That our sin is dealt with and that mercy is poured out because we need mercy. We know we, know we need mercy. We don't need justice. We're going to get it if we're not saved, but we, we don't need justice. We need mercy. And in Christ, God can provide that for us. May you rest in him as uh, your only hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the greatness of your love in providing for us uh, the substitute who can satisfy your just and holy wrath against our sin. I pray that for each of us here, we would know him and know that mercy and know that grace that is found only in him, that you, O Lord, might uh, give us that grace and that 
hope and that peace that we find through Christ our Lord. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.